Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hal at the home studio, and joining us on the phone now, the president of the Manitoba Metis Federation, David Chartrand. David, uh, David, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Al. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you for uh, jumping on here for a couple of minutes. Um, a few things. Uh, do you mind if we start with a, a quick question about homelessness? Because we were just talking about that. Those two camps were over by the MMF, and now those camps have been cleared. A week ago was the last day for the uh, homeless people to move on. And uh, while some have uh, gone to shelters, many have moved on, and now smaller camps are, are popping up. How do you feel about what I was saying earlier about, you know, it's fine to clear them out of an area when they get big and sort of unsightly when everybody notices them and is paying attention to them, but then these small camps pop up and and the problem doesn't disappear or get dealt with, it just kind of gets moved, you know what I mean? Well, for sure I know what you mean. In fact, uh, I did we did echo statements on that issue that, you know, there's many uh, that are actually gathering to try to figure out solutions and it's not... Uh, a shel- just a simple shelter solution because there's addictions, there's mentally mental challenges that are faced by some of those individuals that are lost and have nowhere to go. Uh, so it's, it cannot just be as simple as a tent or even a building. It's got to be a more holistic wraparound kind of service. But what's missing, Hal, is the, is the province. Now, if the province would actually get involved and actually put uh, a, a really uh, focused uh, investment in there, it'll save the taxpayers as the province probably millions and potentially hundreds of millions into the future because it's costing no matter what we're still getting and still have to pay for them in the hospitals and them in institutions or services and no matter how you look at it so they need a full uh, surround wraparound service that needs to come to them but it's not going to happen if the province doesn't come to the table and actually brings money to the table yeah, and you've put money out there for the cause, and I, you've talked about that before. Mayor Bowman basically kind of passed the buck to the province, pointed to the uh, over to Broadway as well from there at, at on Main Street, and and you would agree that's where if there's blame here, that's where most of, most of the blame lies, eh, is with the province because it seems like to me there's plenty of blame on this issue to go around. It seems like a lot of feet are getting dragged here. Well, if you look at it, Al, for example, we've invested over half a million right now in the last eight few months helping the homelessness file, trying to help out in any way we can, whether it's supporting food banks or whether it's uh, uh, helping those in that are giving out uh, food to, on a daily basis to people struggling to make ends meet or p- just struggling to get a meal. So, like, for example, we did, uh, delivered over 24 sandwiches to four institutions that are actually working on a daily basis with street people. And so, but we don't see the problems there. Uh, you know, I don't see them at the table. I don't come to the table. I'll give you even a perfect one, an easy one. If you look at Thunderbird House, and they were looking for a place to test the homeless. They, the, the cost was minimal, excuse me, several thousand dollars, that's all it was, to do the washroom repairs and to get it ready for testing. And guess what? The province didn't put a penny in there. We at the Federation had to put the money to build and get the place ready for an institution to be developed at the Thunderbird House to test the homeless. The province wasn't willing to put even a few thousand dollars in there. So the MMF did it. Hmm. And it's only going to get tougher now with COVID-19 and all the spending that's happening around the pandemic, right? So, I mean, now it's just going to get more difficult going forward. But anyhow, I, I didn't want to have you on about homelessness, but I appreciate you answering answering a couple of questions on that, David. Um, I wanted to talk to you about these petitions that are circulating. 
anything named Wolseley. There are petitions about Wolseley Avenue, Lord Wolseley School, Wolseley School um, in Winnipeg, Cecil Road School, that's another one. There's a street, uh, an avenue, I think it's an avenue in Brandon called Rosser, and, um, well, Bishop Grandin, too. All of these names that are tied to some type of oppression, and uh, people want to see the names changed. You have said, no, leave the names there. Please explain why you feel that way. Well, it's like, let the stain remain, right? Because you you, you, it's it's for us, you know, it's taken us, for example, right now, uh, I'm in Southern Oaks. It was known as the Massacre of Southern Oaks. But in our families, in our stories, it was known as the victory of Frog Plain, just by a Green Bayer Hotel. So, but it had to be portrayed as we were the villains because we won that particular battle. So if you look at history where it's Wolseley, who, who created such great harm to our Métis Nation, probably the most uh, Indigenous people severely affected in Canada by Wolseley was the Métis Nation. And, but you look at history, we suffered 150 years, but we're finally getting and making headway like we did here. The, the massacre of Southern Oaks is no longer the story to be told at Southern Oaks because it was proven that Cuthbert Grant was actually legally and, and not criminally involved, uh, uh, charged with an offense uh, that they claim he, he did. So when you look at history, if those names disappear, how do we tell the story or measure them? I think what's missing, Hal, is we have all these platitudes of, for example, Wolseley. He was definitely a military expert, a wise man when it came to military battles, whether it's in Egypt or Africa or here. But if you look at it, it tells of all his good deeds. It doesn't talk about the stuff he let happen. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't stop the reign of terror against the Métis, where so many people suffered the consequences. People died. Women were raped and houses were burned. He just let it happen. He was the leader. So, but that's what needs to be told. Put that plaque beside the plaque that talks about his military experience. Mm-hmm. And then let people judge how they will look at the name Wolseley and how it affected the people that he actually impacted, interacted with. Yeah. Tell the other side of the story, essentially. Yeah. So people need to learn that. It's a learning thing. And Johnny McDonald, they asked me the question when that was happening uh, several, uh, probably last year, when they're talking about bringing Johnny McDonald's statue down. I said, he's the first prime minister of this country. Whether he was good or bad, he's still the first prime minister. And at the end of the day, it's our job, and hopefully Canadians as a whole, to challenge that issue. What else did he do besides becoming a prime minister and leading to develop a country? What else did he do that we should understand and know and how he impacted a certain people? Then we can understand where the people are today in history, why they're suffering or in a situation economically deprived. Why is that? It's simple. It's not because they're lazy people. They have always been hardworking people. They stole our economic future from us, and, and that we paid 150 years later. We're still suffering that consequence of Wolseley's actions and Johnny McDonald. But I don't believe their names should be taken away. They're a learning experience. In fact, it gives you the fire in your gut to fight, to showcase and tell the story that needs to be told yet for all Canadians to understand. Yeah, and maybe, you know, when we hear the good and the bad with these names that are on our our signs, our streets and, and our buildings, uh, maybe it will inspire us to be better people when we learn the bad along with the good. Exactly. It's like I just said, when uh, sample is, you look at the Scottish people, they arrived here in 1812. And, and four years later, they're in a battle uh, representing Hudson Bay against the Métis people under, against Cuthbert Grant. But it, it's not all Scottish who are bad. It's not all Scottish who are out to hunt the Métis. In fact, we have Scottish in our bloodlines. But the point is this that the individuals were only commissioned 
by who? The Hudson Bay and ordering them to descend and fight as a militia against the Métis. So you, you can't punish all of them or just mm. Semple himself. He was taking an order and following it. But we, I yeah. pay homage to, to the Scottish people here today. Because, mm-hmm. yes, we, we won the battle. Yes, we killed many. And they killed one of ours. But they killed us first. So when you look at history, I think it's important for people to make sure the curriculums are, in the educational institutions are changed rightly so they can tell the true story. True, a true story of mm-hmm. all the different uh, sufferings or issues or challenges that people face. Whether it's us or the yeah. Ukrainians that came here and the struggles they face, it's important that people know about that to learn. We're a young country, how? A very young country. Mm-hmm. And we have so yeah. much yet to learn and tell about our stories. Hey, David, uh, before I run out of time here, uh, we can hear the activity in the background. Tell everybody where you're at today. I know it's an important day. Well, it's in Southern Oaks. It's 204 years ago the battle took place here, just by the Green Fire Hotel by Main, on Main Street. And, of course, uh, one of the things I'm really so proud of is the, is the children in schools did a lot of study and research, and they changed the vaccine verbiage that was here. As I said at one time, it was called the Massacre of Southern Oaks. And that was not, it was only intended to make us look like the, the villains, the bad guys that were, were, were doing wrong. But really, at the end of the day, uh, the law, the, the country itself proved that we weren't doing that. And we're defending our right to free trade. We talk about Mulroney's free trade, and we debated it in the country. This, this was happening in 1816, where a battle took place regarding who had the right to trade. So, so when you look at history, you can fix it, you can correct it, and you still can celebrate. And celebrate today, we celebrate openly. My invitation is always there for the Scottish people, even though the battle took place with them here, representing Hudson Bay. We still invite them into our home at any time. David Chartrand, thank you for your time. Appreciate your perspective on this. Thank you very much, Al. I uh, had a chance this morning here at the home studio to record a quick conversation with Stephen Portnoy. He is a White House correspondent, and I wanted to have him on about Trump's big Tulsa rally, which is happening this week. It was supposed to happen today, but then somebody at the White House said, "Um, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, it's Juneteenth. And uh, maybe we want to move that. So it's in Tulsa tomorrow night now. We'll get into that with Stephen here. Um, uh, And also, I asked him to help us here in Canada uh, explain the importance of of what today is. So anyhow, here's my chat with Stephen Portnoy, a White House correspondent that I recorded this morning. Well, it's good to be with you. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Before we get into Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the campaign, and this rally in Tulsa tomorrow night, Help us here in Canada understand Juneteenth a bit. Juneteenth is a celebration of the day in 1865 when slaves in Texas found out that they were liberated under the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation once Union soldiers uh, had uh, gotten word to them. And as far as we understand it, the, the legend has it that that is when the last vestiges of slavery were extinguished in the United States. Since then, it has been celebrated mainly by people uh, in the African-American community as a day of liberation. Here in Washington, D.C., for many years, it's actually been a formal city holiday. The president recently, in an interview, said that he has made it very famous. Well, the reason he, to the degree that's true, the reason he has is because he scheduled initially this rally to happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. on June 19th. Now, mm-hmm. he scheduled it because he says that a couple of people who he trusts, who are African-American, suggested to him that it might be a good idea. The particular difficulty in holding a rally in Tulsa on June 19th is the fact that Tulsa, 99 years ago, was the site of one of the worst 
race riots in American history. Hundreds of people, as I understand it, were killed. Mm. Uh, and it, it was, it's, a, it's a, a mark, a horrible, shameful mark on the, the history of the United States. So to have it happen in that city on that day was something that I think the president realized was had the appearance of being insensitive. And it was a rare reversal on his part to back away from uh, such a, 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 a rally and move it a day ahead. So now it'll be June 20th tomorrow. Yeah, he usually uh, doesn't change his mind on stuff like that, but he did on this one. Hey, quickly, how much will race relations and everything that's been happening of late how much will all of that affect this 2020 campaign, whatever it looks like? Well, it could have a significant impact. I mean, this country has not yet come to terms, clearly not come to terms on this issue of, of race relations. And uh, you know, polls indicate that race relations were, were thought to be at a high point, for the most part, in the early point of Barack Obama's presidency, when he was elected as the first African-American president in early 2009. Since then, polls have indicated that people have since had a negative, increasingly negative view of relations between the races in the United States. And what you have now is a, a circumstance in which people are really very much on edge. Since Ferguson, Missouri, when Michael Brown was killed after charging at a police officer, you've had this debate about the role of police in public in American life playing out in the, in the public debate. And in the recent weeks with the death of George Floyd and the circumstance in Atlanta and other circumstances in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and other cities where you had people who were, for the most part, unarmed, being killed by either police officers, or in the case of Ahmed Arbery, uh, who is a, an unarmed man chased through his neighborhood as he was jogging, uh, violence being perpetrated against African-American, mainly men, but also women. And so this issue has come to the fore. It's very much a part of the public discourse and debate right now in our politics. And, you know, President Trump has a challenge because, you know, African-Americans in the main do not have faith or confidence in Donald Trump's ability or willingness to tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, he has demonstrated a willingness to address it, this week, he signed an executive order that uh, encourages police to limit the use of chokeholds and you know, encourage de-escalation training. Uh, his party, the Republican Party, is now embracing a proposal by the African-American senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, uh, which advances some of these measures, but they don't go nearly as far as what the Democrats have proposed in the House. Uh, that would not just ban the use of chokeholds, but also uh, limit the qualified immunity that police officers enjoy in the courts in the United States when they take action that people feel uh, uh, amount to abuse. So uh, th this is very much a part of the public discussion, and the reason it's a risk for the president is because uh, if African Americans come out in numbers that they did in 2008 and 2012 for Barack Obama, if they come out in those numbers for Joe Biden, well, then it, it stands to reason that Donald Trump could wind up being a first-term president. Yeah, and Joe Biden uh, just this week, I think, announced $15 million or something like that in advertising in battleground states, five or six of them, uh, that Trump won. So obviously uh, the Democrats see that Trump may be weak on that front, and uh, they're trying to capitalize. Final question, this Tulsa rally tomorrow night, 
it's going to be jam-packed. But in Oklahoma, they have had record cases of COVID-19 over the past several days. What a, a weird situation, eh? You better believe it. Uh, the incidents of coronavirus are on the rise in Oklahoma. The president has said that he chose that state because it was a state that had low incidence of coronavirus, but now it just happens to be increasing. The nation's leading infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in an interview with me this morning, declined to specifically address his concern about the Tulsa rally, but he said he's concerned about all mass gatherings. He said that the risk is is real, and it's apparent and obvious. And when I asked him about the wisdom of bringing tens of thousands of people into an enclosed space in a city where the incidence is not decreasing but increasing, he said, well, I don't even have to tell you what I think about that. It's a concern. Stephen, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. You bet. That is White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Um, we have a new relationship with CBS, and so you're going to hear some great new voices, including uh, that one, Stevens. And we have Peter King on the other day talking sports with us. So you're going to hear some great new voices helping us cover uh, some of these uh, American and international stories here on CJOB uh, and on Global News. And we were talking earlier this week, was it even just yesterday? Yeah, I guess it was just yesterday about some of the other cool grad ideas. But I like that, drive through red carpet grad. Dr. Cyrus Dirksen joins us now. Hey, Doc, that sounds like a lot of fun, actually, eh? You know, it does sound like fun. I, I, don't, know, I don't mind that. I mean, uh, I wonder what that would actually be like. I mean, you'd have to decorate and, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Right. Something really weird. Cool it would be I interesting mean, to be there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, it's it's. Well, I I wrote about this in my uh, in my Sun column tomorrow, and I I said that you know a month or so ago I was I was feeling bad for them because I thought oh man this is going to suck it's not going to be the grad that they wanted or expected, but you know now hearing about some like up in. Um, um, in down in Morden, for example, they're mm-hmm. having a drive-in um, uh, uh, grad, or part of their grad is at the Stardust Drive-In. Swan Valley, they've got big banners, big pictures of the grads on Main Street. Um, so while I was feeling kind of bad for the 2020 grads, I salute them now, man. They have really come up with some creative, fun ideas, ways to celebrate the end of their high school education. You know, it's interesting because I think some of the times, we, you know, we're disappointed. I remember uh, going to a restaurant and, like, eating out of, you know, takeout stuff at, at my table and uh, kind of, like, feeling a little sad. And then I turned to my wife and I was like, you know, it was actually the last day that that was going to happen. I'm like, this is a memory. Like, we are the last people to eat this way in this restaurant maybe ever. And so it does yeah. go from, you know, being something that's different maybe sad or uh to something that's kind of unique and memorable for sure mm-hmm. and i think you and i have talked about this in the past two or three months but it must be challenging for them and and other people at points in their life where they're looking for a start right a new start mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not knowing what the future is going to hold right this pandemic mm-hmm. has sort of everything in limbo yeah i never thought of that you know what would it be like now to be young and trying to choose your career and uh, thinking about a pandemic proof job you know uh it, it would be totally different that's for sure yeah all right on to some of the prepared content here dr cyrus headline first one of the afternoon with dr cyrus by the way the website is drcyrus.com d-r-s-y-r-a-s.com why people with borderline personality pick poor 
partners. This is a good one. So why is that? And then I've got a bunch of questions on this one. You know, this was just so interesting even to find out that we could identify this in the research because, I mean, we see, you know, well beyond borderline personality disorder, we see people, I see people who have just repeated negative relationship, abusive relationship after abusive relationship. And there's always this question of, am I just unlucky or is there something about the way that I'm choosing these people uh, that's getting me into this thing again and again and again? So what they actually did was they took people um, and they created a game, and I won't get into the game because it's quite complicated, but basically they had people who were unfair and people who were fair, and the people with borderline personality disorder were more likely to partner up with people who were unfair towards them. They kind of had this blind eye towards this unfairness, and uh, they went and joined them anyway. And so it does seem to be the case that there are people who have psychological dynamics that make them more likely to choose an unfair situation for themselves. And uh, so the implications just kind of go from there. And that was going to be my question. You talked about some people just making the same bad relationship choices again and again and again. Is that something that we see in people that don't necessarily have a borderline personality um, issue? Um, you know, you, you don't have to have a, uh, a flaw in your personality uh, to make a bad choice, but are we seeing those people making the same choices again and again? Borderline personality disorder is, uh, my, my way of explaining borderline personality disorder is it's trauma that happened when you were young. Over 90% of people who have the disorder have been traumatized when they were young, experienced some kind of abusive situation, break of trust. And so... And my uh, feelings or, or thoughts about this dynamic of choosing unfair partners is about past experience. You've been in situations where you've been hurt, where you feel um, differently about relationships. It's affected your, your self-esteem and your way of choosing people. And now you choose people who kind of meet these certain criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, they maybe appear strong. They maybe appear fun, charming, potentially and when really these are actually dynamics of people who are boundary-breaking and more likely to be unfair because they treat other people unfairly. And so you're, you're choosing something familiar. You're choosing something that maybe makes you feel like you're at home, but it's actually something that's quite negative and something that can be very painful. And so, yeah, I think it's abuse in general. Negative experiences, particularly for young people in their first relationships or people who have experienced it from a childhood experience. They are more likely to kind of see love differently and see relationships differently. And can it also be that there's something safe about that type of partner, right? That you, uh, you know, because listen, change and, and taking a risk is always difficult in life. Is that part of it too, that for whatever reason, that type of partner is a safe partner. They don't have any, they don't have to deal with new challenges. They deal with stuff they've dealt with before. It's safe for a couple of reasons. One is one that you're mentioning is that familiarity, right? This is what I grew up with. It's safe in that way. I don't have to do something different, deal with somebody with more self-esteem potentially. The other is that people who are boundary breakers are more um, likely to show their affection and, and break down the boundaries of the person who they're pursuing. So it's safer in that you can allow this person to pursue you and do it in a more obvious way, which builds up your self-esteem, so as they're breaking boundaries everywhere, they're breaking your boundaries, which actually feels kind of endearing. It feels flattering. 
And uh, so in that way, you don't have to put yourself out there or be as vulnerable because you're being pursued so aggressively. So there's, a, mm. there's actually a few ways that this can happen. And yeah, feeling safe is one of them. Yeah. Uh, next headline. What is video call fatigue? Well, I think I know what it is. And most people are going, I know what it is, too, because I think we're all dealing with it, man. I'm telling you. Um, now, I haven't done a lot of video calls. And maybe you'll answer this question as you tell me about this story. Um, but is there a difference between like just a, a phone conference call or a Skype conference call where you're just on the phone? Is is a video call worse? Is that more tiring than just a normal conference call, or is it all kind of the same thing? You know, I think that there are some things about the video call that are actually worse. Um, <clears throat> I don't have research to kind of do that comparison, but my guess is that it, it could be worse. I mean, it's better in the sense that you get to see the person, you get to see the smile and the satisfaction in their face at stories and things like this. However, there's one thing. I mean, there's a number of things like the technical issues and maybe seeing a lot of people looking at you at once on the screen and can make you feel pressured or overwhelmed. But the, the thing that's different is that the person is never looking at you. They're always looking at the screen, which is not the same as looking at the camera. So when you're on a video call, it always looks like the person's avoiding your gaze. Now, you don't normally think about that. You don't because we're so familiar with it, like the zoom look of somebody looking a little bit down. Uh, we're used to it. So we know it's not offensive, but it does wear on us because it's not natural. We're used to somebody looking us in the eye occasionally. And if they don't, it looks like they're not paying attention to us, like they're not interested in, in us. And that doesn't happen when we're on a phone call. When, when we're on a phone call, we imagine the person differently but when you're on that zoom call you can see them not looking at you in the eye so sometimes and it's very challenging it can be good to actually look at the camera because that's the other person's eye and um i mean i've had to learn to do that with you know different going on camera or things like this you kind of look at the camera not at the screen and then it actually helps you to make a connection with the person and we've actually even told our therapists when we do telehealth although it's hard to do is to look at the camera and not at the person so they can feel more connected to you and that'll contribute to, and it doesn't contribute as much to the video call fatigue. But there's other things like screen time can give you a headache if you do it too long. And this can just contribute to even more screen time, even your conversations are screen time, not just your work, which just adds to it. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.